Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This holiday, whether you're making a Baker's Simple Truth Turkey for 40 or a Murray's Baked Brie for two, Baker's has fast, fresh delivery and free pickup, so you can make holiday meals that bring you all together to create memories that last. Baker's, fresh for everyone. Free pickup on orders of $35 or more. Restrictions may apply. And right now, you can save when you shop your faves. Just buy six or more participating sale items and save 50 cents each with your card. Baker's, fresh for everyone. Hey guys, Nate Hale here. You may have noticed there are two episodes out this week. That's because I recently had the opportunity to view an advanced screening of Magnolia Pictures' new documentary, Cold Case Hammerschold, and even got the chance to interview the film's director, Mads Brueger. In this episode, I'm presenting you with my own take on the mysterious death of UN Secretary General Dag Hammarskjöld. And in the bonus episode this week, I'm releasing my interview with the documentary's director. I hope you enjoy both episodes, and be sure to check out the film Cold Case Hammarskjöld, now available in theaters and on demand in the United States. Personally, I found it both really entertaining and informative, and I learned a lot from it. And now, without further ado, on with the show. During the 15th century, Portuguese explorers began returning home with tales of an exotic new land they had discovered. Along a fertile river basin straddling the equator on the western side of the great African continent. The place was a thriving community they called the Kingdom of Congo. And according to their best estimates, there must have been close to half a million people living there. Half a million people? And literally tons of valuable resources just waiting to be exploited. Merchant travelers began swarming the area looking to trade in a wide variety of goods including copper, pottery, cloth, and precious ivory. But perhaps the most valuable resource to be found in the Kingdom of Congo were the people themselves. The Atlantic slave trade began in the early 16th century, with the region near the mouth of the Congo River being the most heavily targeted. Across a strip of coastline just 400 kilometers long, Around 4 million people were taken by force and shipped across the ocean. Between 1500 and 1850, these enslaved people were beaten, chained, and forced to work in sugar plantations throughout Brazil, the Caribbean, and the United States. Despite the large number of slave traders and other merchants that became rich off the backs of the people of the Congo, not much remained known about the region throughout Europe until the second half of the 19th century when a missionary explorer named David Livingstone headed to, and promptly disappeared into, the Congolese bush. This, of course, led to that famous moment in history when, in 1870, the New York Herald sent another young explorer named Henry Morton Stanley to go looking for him, resulting in the legendary quote, Dr. Livingstone, I presume. Henry Morton Stanley's exploration of the Congo was hailed as one of the most important geographical discoveries in history. 
Among the people who read the newspaper accounts of the expedition was none other than King Leopold II of Belgium. As he read the story in the Times, the king realized he was missing out on getting his own slice of that rich African pie. In 1885, King Leopold founded and ruled what was now called, ironically enough, the Congo Free State. In order to do so, the king built up a vast colonial army known as the Force Publique, comprised mainly of white officers and black soldiers, many of whom were cannibals from the upper Congo. But it proved difficult for King Leopold II to control and extract a profit from the million square miles of jungle he now owned. In 1895, Leopold realized the region was proving far too costly to him. So he actually tried to give the colony to the Belgian government, but at the time there were no takers. But after a Scotsman named Dunlop invented the pneumatic tire for his bicycle, a lucrative new market opened up for the rubber that grew in the wild vines throughout the Congo. Leopold set quotas for the natives to retrieve both rubber and ivory for him. By 1902, the price of rubber had risen 15 times in only 8 years, and Leopold's enforcers made sure they got it by any means necessary. One of the symbols of Leopold's rule was the chicote, a whip made from sun-dried hippopotamus hide that was sharp enough to flay the skin off a man's back. It's impossible to determine exact numbers, but it's believed that King Leopold's forces were responsible for the deaths of millions of Congolese residents during his reign over the region. The penalty for failing to collect enough rubber was cutting off the offending person's hand. Soldiers routinely collected severed hands by the basketful. Other stories tell of how Belgian officers routinely cut off the heads and sexual organs of some of the men and hung them throughout villages as a warning to others to always obey their white masters. But the king's soldiers couldn't hide the horrific truth of their actions for long. In fact, one of the first people to report what was going on in the Congo was a riverboat captain named Joseph Conrad, who, eight years later, went on to write the definitive work of literature about white settlers in Africa, Heart of Darkness. By 1908, all the many scandalous reports of torture, murder, and rape throughout the king's rubber plantations forced the Belgian parliament to finally seize control of the region from King Leopold and try to restore order. They renamed the Congo Free State to the Belgian Congo, but even after that, the region would remain in constant turmoil. Christian missionaries and European mining companies continued to move into the Belgian Congo, building cities, roads, hospitals, and airports while simultaneously exploiting the people and natural resources. By the Second World War, mining throughout the Congo had proven so profitable that it made the region into Africa's richest colony. By 1959, the Belgian Congo was producing 10% of the world's copper, as well as 50% of the world's cobalt, and 70% of industrial diamonds. But all that wealth and economic development never managed to trickle down to the average Congolese citizen. The Congolese had no rights to vote, own land, or even travel freely. Forced labor and nightly curfews were strictly enforced. There was no higher education for the average citizen, except for those few who decided to join the clergy to become priests. By the time the Congo achieved independence in the early 1960s, out of a population of 60 million, only 16 individuals had become university graduates. All of this rampant inequality and centuries of oppression 
set the stage for a violent and bloody civil war that began to tear the region apart at the seams. In order to quell the violence, the then Secretary General Dag Hammarskjöld was sent on a diplomatic mission to negotiate peace between the warring factions. But Hammarskjöld never reached his destination. Sometime after midnight on September 18, 1961, Dag Hammarskjöld's plane crashed over the jungles near Indola. Although the official cause of the crash was reported to be a tragic accident, in the nearly six decades that have passed, mounting evidence has been revealed to show that Dag Hammarskjöld may have been assassinated. Not only that, but his death may have been at the heart of one of the most sinister and deadly conspiracies in Africa's history. I'm Nate Hale, sailing you along the rivers of history once again into the heart of darkness. And this is The Conspirators. Today you can find Dog Hammarskjöld's name emblazoned on several buildings throughout the United Nations headquarters in New York. When he was appointed Secretary General in 1953, many people expected him to be your average bureaucrat. But, in fact, he turned out to be much more hands-on than anyone expected. He was the son of the former Prime Minister of Sweden. He began his career in the Ministry of Finance before working for the Bank of Sweden, and later the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. In 1949, he became the Swedish delegate to the UN General Assembly. Then in 1953, he was elected the second-ever Secretary General. Hammarskjöld proved to be so wildly successful at his job that he was re-elected to a second five-year term in 1957. Dag Hammarskjöld became known during his time as Secretary General as one of the key figures who shaped the UN into its peacekeeping role around the world. In fact, he has often been referred to as one of the two best secretaries general in the history of the United Nations. In 1954 and 1955, Hammarskjöld personally negotiated the release of 15 U.S. soldiers that China had captured during the Korean War. This at a time when China wasn't even part of the U.N. He also helped negotiate peace in several conflicts throughout the Middle East, including the Suez Crisis of 1956. He is only one of four people to be awarded a posthumous Nobel Prize. President John F. Kennedy referred to him as the greatest statesman of the century. In 1960, Hammarskjöld turned his attention towards Central Africa. A wave of African nationalism that swept through the continent led to widespread violent riots by citizens demanding equal rights. Within a year and a half, a new independence party known as the Movement National Congolese had risen to prominence, led by Patrice Lumumba. After the Belgian Congo achieved independence and became the Independent Republic of Congo, Lumumba became the Republic's first democratically elected Prime Minister. But shortly after independence was declared, the mineral-rich Congolese province of Katanga seceded, sparking a violent civil war. Hammarskjöld sent in UN peacekeeping troops to restore order. But this proved to be a political disaster that pitted the UN peacekeepers against Katanga's separatists, who were themselves backed by the wealthy and powerful Belgian mining companies throughout the province. While all this was going on, Patrice Lumumba went behind the UN's back and appealed to the Soviet Union to send in their own military to help bring the crisis to an end. 
This, of course, was during the height of the Cold War, and the U.S. and British governments who hadn't been consulted about any of this were infuriated that this could blow up into another proxy war with the Soviets. So they demanded that Hammarskjöld fix this mess and bring the conflict to a swift end. After that, Hammarskjöld arranged a meeting with the leader of Katanga separatists to negotiate a ceasefire. But just after midnight on April 18, 1961, the chartered Douglas DC-6 airliner Hammarskjöld was aboard crashed into the forest near Indola. Officially, Hammarskjöld and the 15 other people on board all died as a result of the crash. But, as you'll hear, there's a lot more to the story than that. Two investigations into the crash by the British-run Central African Federation came to the conclusion that it had been the result of pilot error. They concluded that the plane had been flying too low when it made its approach to the airport. Although an official UN inquiry was only able to reach an open verdict, stating that they could not rule out the crash being the result of a deliberate attack or sabotage. But even though many officials were quick to dismiss the crash as being anything but an accident, other witnesses kept coming forward telling a different story. This included the sole survivor of the crash, UN Security Officer Harold Julian, who claimed there had been some sort of explosion just before the plane crashed. But officials dismissed this testimony because the man was too injured and heavily sedated to be believed. Julian died of his injuries a few days later. A 2011 book by Susan Williams titled Who Killed Hammerschuld brings up many of the peculiarities surrounding the crash. One thing the author describes is how unconcerned the British High Commissioner in Indola, Lord Alpert, appeared to be when Hammerschuld's plane failed to land on schedule. At first, Alpert was quick to say that Hammerschuld must have decided on a whim to turn the plane elsewhere. In fact, a search for the missing plane didn't begin until hours later, despite numerous witnesses reporting seeing a brilliant flash in the night sky shortly after midnight. Two days after Hammerschuld's death, former U.S. President Harry Truman made a startling claim to reporters that the U.N. Secretary General had been assassinated, saying, quote, Hammerschuld was on the point of getting something done when they killed him. Notice that I said, when they killed him. Truman refused to further elaborate on what he meant, but this only helped fuel speculation that Hammerschuld had been murdered. For years after, rumors of what had really occurred gained traction. There was a growing belief that someone had planted a bomb on board Hammerschuld's plane shortly before takeoff. But it wouldn't be until decades later that other evidence began to emerge that may have actually been another plane that shot Hammerschuld's DC-6 out of the sky. In 2005, a UN official, Norwegian Major General Bjorn Egge, told reporters that he had been among the first witnesses to have gotten a look at Hammerschuld's body. He claimed to have seen what appeared to be a bullet hole in the Secretary General's forehead and grass still clutched in his hands, indicating that the man may have still been alive and scrambled from the wreckage before someone else shot him. Photos of Hammerschuld's body don't appear to show the head wound described, although some researchers have claimed it's because the bullet hole was airbrushed out of the pictures. There is one photo of Hammerschuld's corpse that does appear to show one curious clue, which I'll get more into later a playing card poking out of the man's left hand. In 2014, a 1961 cable from the U.S. ambassador to the Congo, Ed Guillaume, was declassified, which seemed to indicate Doc Hammerschuld had been assassinated. The cable mentioned the name of a Belgian mercenary pilot, Jan van Riesigem. 
who Guillaume pointed the finger to as being the one who shot down Hammerschold's plane. Riesingham was a military pilot who had served with the Royal Air Force during World War II. He later served with the Belgian Air Force and was suspected of working as a mercenary for Katanga separatists at the time Hammerschold's plane went down. One of Riesingham's pilot buddies would even later go on record claiming his friend had bragged to him that he had shot down Hammerschold's plane. In 2014, the Guardian newspaper published an account by an American NSA employee named Charles Southall, who said that he was working at an NSA listening station 3,000 miles away in Cyprus at the time of the crash, and that he actually heard what really happened. Southall claimed to have listened to an intercept of a pilot with the codename of the Lone Ranger, describing in real time how he chased down a DC-6 over the jungle and shot it out of the sky. According to aircraft registration and other records from the Katanga Air Force, the Lone Ranger's plane was most likely a Fuga CM-170 Magister, the exact model plane that Riesingham flew. Recently, a Swedish researcher named Hans Christian Simonsen has also claimed to have uncovered evidence pointing the finger of blame at a different perpetrator. This, he said, came from a confidential report by the Military Information Branch of the United Nations that was circulated just weeks after the crash. The investigators wrote in the report that the pilot who shot down Hammerschold's plane was actually a different mercenary who went by the name Paul Dubois. This gets even more complicated because Dubois may have been an alias of a British mercenary named John Dane, who also flew Fuga jets for Katanga separatists in the early 1960s. But no matter who the pilot may have been, that still leaves open the question of who ultimately ordered the hit on Doc Hammerschold. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. In 1998, near the end of the apartheid era, Archbishop Desmond Tutu's Truth and Reconciliation Commission claimed that they had found letters implicating a consortium of British intelligence, South Africa's intelligence service, and the United States Central Intelligence Agency in the crash. Although some researchers have since called these letters veracity into question. Following the bombshell revelation, the CIA was quick to dismiss the accusations made against them as nothing more than Cold War propaganda cooked up by the Soviets. But there does seem to be some evidence that the CIA knew more than they were letting on. One thing we know today that's been declassified about the CIA's covert activities during the 1960s is that during the Vietnam War they used to run an infamous counterterrorism and assassination program known as Phoenix, designed to identify and kill members of the Viet Cong. Throughout its history, the Phoenix program is believed to have killed more than 80,000 people, 
many of whom were high-ranking Viet Cong killed in covert assassinations. One small detail about the program that has also been claimed is that some agents would leave behind a literal calling card in the hands of their victims, an Ace of Spades playing card, the same playing card visible in photos of Doc Hammarskjöld's corpse. But the CIA and British intelligence aren't the only secretive organizations that have been implicated in the death of Doc Hammarskjöld. And that's where things get really bizarre. During the 1990s, a South African journalist named Dewet Pogiter interviewed a man named Keith Maxwell and also took the only known photograph of the man. In the photo, Keith Maxwell sits in a chair dressed from head to toe all in white, staring seriously into the camera. Maxwell was a pretty unusual individual, to say the least. In fact, if you just hear the broad strokes of his life, as he told it, he sounds like a real-life James Bond villain. He was a self-proclaimed doctor and head of his own paramilitary organization known as the South African Institute for Maritime Research, or SIMAR for short. Maxwell liked to dress theatrically all in white, or sometimes in full 18th century naval regalia. The secretive organization he ran was allegedly responsible for covert military operations and assassinations throughout the African continent. Not only that, but they were also supposedly attempting to spread a deadly plague meant to wipe out the black population. During Maxwell's interviews with Pogiter, he told the reporter that he was the latest Commodore of Saimar, which was a military group with a rich history dating back to a group of British mariners in the 1800s. In fact, the same documents produced by the Truth and Reconciliation Committee in 1998, implicating the CIA and British intelligence in the plane crash, also indicated that Saimar may have been the group the intelligence agencies turned to for the job. Maxwell made a lot of extraordinary claims about the work he had been involved in during his interview with Pogiter. And at one point he presented the reporter with the first half of a semi-fictional autobiography, with the hopes of getting a book deal out of it. In that portion of the book, Maxwell describes being enlisted at a young age to work in a top-secret government biological weapons research lab to create deadly contagions. Although there is no real evidence to show that Maxwell had any sort of medical degree, or medical knowledge for that matter, he still referred to himself publicly as a doctor, and actually performed surgeries and opened medical clinics in poor villages and towns around South Africa. Keith Maxwell died in 2006 of a heart attack in many of the secrets of Saimar appeared to have died with him. And yet, even still, decades later, a few independent journalists and investigators have been able to track down and interview various former mercenaries who claim to have worked for Saimar. According to some of these reports, Maxwell ran Saimar training facilities in remote jungle compounds where his soldiers were trained in espionage and covert military tactics. They were then hired by various groups looking to mastermind coups, assassinations, or any other sort of dirty work that a regular government military wouldn't do. Some of these former Saimar members also implicated Maxwell in running his own secret biological experiments to spread the HIV-AIDS virus throughout Africa, to wipe out black people, and cement white rule throughout the continent. According to some whistleblowers, Maxwell's clinics administered the AIDS virus to people under the guise of a vaccination program. Although there remains some disagreement among the scientific community about the AIDS virus's exact origins, 
It's generally believed among mainstream scientists that the virus somehow jumped from monkeys to humans during the 1930s. But ever since the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention first reported the HIV-AIDS epidemic in 1981, there have continued to be persistent rumors that the deadly virus was actually bred in a CIA-run lab to eliminate African Americans and homosexuals. Even former South African President Thabo Mbeki once touted the theory that the U.S. government were the real villains who created the virus. After winning the Nobel Peace Prize, a Kenyan ecologist named Wangari Matai began giving interviews supporting the theory as well, although she has since backtracked her statements and no longer claims to believe in the AIDS conspiracy. One long-standing theory claims that the U.S. government deliberately infected gay men with the virus in a series of hepatitis B experiments in New York, San Francisco, and Los Angeles back in 1978. Yet another theory points the finger of blame at former President Richard Nixon, after he combined the Army's Biowarfare Department with the National Cancer Institute in 1971. In 2012, Professor Nicole Natras published a book titled The AIDS Conspiracy, in which she attempts to dispel many of the conspiracy theories. She suggests that many of these theories were actually the product of even more Cold War intrigue. She posits that many AIDS conspiracy theories were actually the proverbial fake news dreamed up by Soviet KGB officers, hoping to cast the United States in a bad light. Although a handful of former Saimar members have come forward claiming the organization was secretly infecting people with AIDS throughout its vaccination program, most mainstream scientists claim this was impossible. Dr. Salim S. Abdul Karim, a renowned director of AIDS research in South Africa in the 1990s, said that for Maxwell's group to have done what's been claimed, they would have needed millions of dollars in infrastructure, on par with the U.S. government's disease centers. On a purely scientific level, it's been shown that HIV is very difficult to isolate and keep it viable in a solution long enough to deliberately inject someone with it. Mainstream AIDS researchers often point out how dangerous these conspiracy theories can be since they only further create mistrust with doctors who are actually trying to help infected patients, many of whom turn to folk remedies to try to cure themselves rather than allow modern scientists to treat them. On the other hand, though, this still doesn't necessarily mean that Saimar wasn't at least attempting to infect people with HIV-AIDS. Just because an idea doesn't make any real scientific sense doesn't necessarily mean a bunch of quack doctors couldn't have attempted it. Many of those former Saimar Medical Clinic buildings still exist today, although they've long since been shut down. But while they were in operation, it does appear they may have been doing something shady. In 1990, a young South African woman named Dagmar Feel was murdered in front of her home. Her mother told the South African authorities that Dagmar had been conducting AIDS research for Saimar, and that she had been involved in injecting people with phony vaccines that were infected with the virus. According to members of Dagmar's family, the young woman had been getting ready to blow the lid on Saimar's operations when she was killed. Dagmar reportedly began telling people that she was afraid for her life in the days leading up to her death. But authorities at the time were quick to dismiss these allegations, and to this day, no one has ever been arrested in Dagmar's murder. With no progress in the investigation, Dagmar's mother began searching on her own for her daughter's killer. Although Dagmar's mother died of natural causes a few years ago, she still kept good records of her investigation. 
and apparently even met with Keith Maxwell at some point. One surprising thing her family found in her personal effects was the second half of Keith Maxwell's heavily fictionalized autobiography. People who have read the entire manuscript have said it's a rambling and often unbelievable story. One reporter who interviewed Keith Maxwell actually described the man as a self-important clown. But one tantalizing detail that did emerge from Maxwell's manuscript is the tale he tells of how his group Saimar was hired by members of the South African intelligence community to plant a bomb on board Dag Hammarskjöld's plane. Then, when the bomb didn't go off, they put their contingency plan into motion and sent out a pilot to shoot the plane down. The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, and Entirely Fictional Identity. Thanks so much for listening, and thanks to Magnolia Pictures for giving me the opportunity to screen the documentary film Cold Case Hammerschold. It's currently available in select theaters nationwide in the United States, and also available to rent on demand. I highly recommend you check it out. It gets into loads of other details about the mystery of Dog Hammerschold and Simar that I didn't have time to get into here. And overall, it's just a really entertaining film. If you're interested in hearing more about this story, you can also check out the bonus episode I just released in which I had the opportunity to interview the film's director, Mads Brueger. In other business, I have some new Patreon supporters to thank. Thank you to Ashley, Dave, Kurt, Gabe, and Loretta for helping support the show. Just a reminder, patrons of the show get access to all sorts of bonuses, including stickers, magnets, t-shirts, and our bonus mini-episodes. By the time this episode is out, I will have just released the latest one of those as well. Another great way you can help support the show is by subscribing, rating, and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. You can find The Conspirators in several different podcasting apps, but if you're able to do so, rating and reviewing us on Apple helps boost us in the rankings and spread the good word about the show to more people. Elsewhere, you can find us on our very own website, theconspiratorspodcast.com. We're also on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, so feel free to reach out and let us know how we're doing. Thanks again, and I hope you'll join us again next time. Membership fees apply after free trial. Cancel any time. Can I be real for a second? That goal you have to exercise and eat better, you really can do it. But nobody is going to do it for you. And nobody has to, because you can do it if you have the right tools and a community that cares about helping you get results. And that's us, Beachbody. It's as convenient as your TV or laptop, but you need to decide that you're worth it. Let us help you succeed. Here's how. Go to Beachbody.com to claim your free membership and start feeling great.